Welcome to the State of Research podcast. On this episode, I'll be introducing OVPR's new podcast coordinator and host of our State of Research series. Mason Forrest is a junior in computer science at Colorado State and has been shadowing and working alongside our team in planning and producing our fall episodes. With this new appointed position, Mason will be transitioning into our show's full-time host and curator for the spring 2019 semester. Well, welcome, Mason. I'm so happy to introduce you to our listeners and to have you finally on the show. Yeah, thanks, Christian. I'm, I'm excited to get started. So just to get the ball rolling, I would like to ask you a few questions so the listeners could get to know you a little bit better. So what are your interests in research and what kind of interested you in podcasting and, you know, applying for this position? Well, I've got a pretty wide variety of interests in research. As, as far as podcasting goes, I, uh, I was in Berlin uh, for study abroad last semester and I took a class on it and I just fell in love. So when I came back, I thought maybe I could combine two of my passions. As, um, as you'll mention, I'm a computer science student, so I do a lot of um, looking into the rapidly changing world of technology. Uh, and this podcast, it's an opportunity to branch out and look into some other things that I might not have done otherwise, like um, construction management or bioengineering, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What are you looking forward to in this position and producing this data research podcast? When I started CSU, I had no idea that this was such a big research was such a big deal here. And so actually getting a chance to meet the professors and the faculty that, that do these kind of experiments, it's, that's an exciting experience for me because it, it makes it so much more real and I get to hear their stories. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've definitely experienced that this semester in interviewing some of our guests. I learned so many different things that I wouldn't have learned otherwise not being in this position and not hosting the show. What else um, are you looking forward to? Like, are there any stories that you've read that you would love to kind of write a podcast about or interview a researcher? Well, I'm of the opinion that lasers are super cool. <laughs> so if I ever get the opportunity, I would love to go into a laser laboratory. Yeah, uh, that would be awesome. Yeah. And you know, besides that, uh, maybe, um, you know, I've, I've heard Temple Grandin talk. Boy, mm. the, the chance to interview her, that would be incredible. Yeah. I'll definitely. keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> um, what sort of challenges do you think this role will bring to you? Well, like I mentioned, I, uh, I'm a computer science student, and so I, I don't really know that much about, say, bioengineering or these other fields. And so I'm really uh, I'm kind of jumping out there, effectively, and I am going to be looking into things that I, I don't know much about. But fortunately, I'm pretty curious, and uh, that's part of what drew me to it in the first place. Yeah, I think being curious is the number one quality to have in producing podcasts, but also in life, like it's, you know, it fuels us every day to, you know, find the answers that we're questioning or, you know, explore things that we're not familiar with. And I think you'll definitely be able to explore that more in this position and interviewing the people that you plan to interview in the future. So Mason, what do you have planned for our listeners today on your very first episode? For this episode, I'm going to be interviewing the professors behind the top three most popular conversation stories published by Source in 2018. And we're going to discuss everything from induced earthquakes to armadillos with leprosy. So I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, it sounds like you have an interesting podcast planned. I wish you all the best in this position. And I hope to hear more of your take on the research taking place at CSU. And I would just like to say thank you to all of our listeners for allowing me to share some of the amazing research stories that took place in 2018. As always, ciao. Thanks, Christian. So, to start off this episode, I'm going to be talking to Dr. John Spencer about his research into the transmission of the leprosy disease from an unlikely source. And there's something 
that is perversely fascinating about leprosy as a disease because mm -hmm. of the stigma and... and yeah, this, there's the, a long history, isn't there? Yeah, there's, there's certainly that. I mean, it's one of the... It is the oldest um, disease known to be associated with humans um, that we know of. I think of like biblical references to leprosy and the lepers, right? That's that's what comes to mind. Yeah. yeah what what didn't come to mind was the armadillo part. <laughs> yeah, that 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 part caught me by surprise. <laughs> so so this is this is global leprosy. So you can see, red means it's very high. So here's mm -hmm. Brazil. India, Madagascar, a few places in Africa. Um, so you can see the, the brown areas are, they say it's zero. There are usually around 200 or fewer cases of leprosy in the U.S. 75% of those are probably from people that came from these endemic countries and they had the disease with them and they got diagnosed when they got to the U.S. Um, the other 25% come from, uh, are probably some uh, type of exposure to armadillos. So these are areas in Texas and Louisiana that have these, uh, these dots here in Louisiana and Texas. Up to 20% of armadillos in these areas are infected. Oh. And people <laughs> do all kinds of crazy things with with armadillos um, and as you can see here so they you know play with them at county fairs you know armadillo races they got pet armadillo here they're singing so entertainment this guy owns a post office and this was his pet armadillo and then this guy set up a restaurant out in the woods in Texas and was grilling armadillos for his friends but in the process, you have to kill the armadillo, and then you get exposed to blood and other fluids that could transmit leprosy. So he's wearing gloves, but a lot of people that hunt and, and eat armadillos down in Brazil, they probably don't wear gloves. In the town that we surveyed, 65% of the people ate armadillo at least once a year and we had almost 19% of those liked it so much they consumed it more than once per month and in some cases twice a week. Wow, and, and getting leprosy is probably not on their mind when they're doing this kind of stuff. Well, there's so much leprosy <laughs> down in this area of Brazil that human-to-human -human transmission is still the biggest, mm. the, the easiest way to get leprosy. But we found that of this group of people that really like to eat armadillo and were the biggest consumers, they actually had a 50% higher antibody titer than any other group. Instead of being 60% positive, they were 74% positive. Hmm. And it was a statistically positive risk, so they were almost twice as likely to come down with leprosy just based on their exposure to armadillos. That's pretty significant. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we even had stories in Brazil newspapers and on uh, somebody, a friend of mine in Brazil said that they actually saw it on a local TV news report 
that, hey, these guys found you can get leprosy from armadillos, and who knew? Well, it's been known actually since 2011. It was pretty well established by Richard Truman and his group um, at the National Hansen's Disease Laboratory in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. But it had never been firmly established in Brazil until our publication. So it was big news to them, and it always is because it's like, oh my gosh, you can get leprosy from armadillos. <laughs> not, a, not a natural association. <laughs> well, you know, people, you know, every time they publish a paper about this, about their studies in whether it was Louisiana, Texas, or, or an outbreak, a cluster that they found in Florida, and they identified that in 2015 as a completely separate outbreak that was different from the ones in Texas and Louisiana. When they published these papers, it was like it generated a huge amount of news interest and a little bit of a panic. <laughs> you know, people going, what? That's happening? But a lot more people nowadays know about it, at least in the Gulf states, and know, eh, maybe you shouldn't mess around with armadillos. <laughs> and barbecue them and <laughs> keep them as pets. Next, I'm meeting with Dr. Rick Astor, the CSU professor undertaking research into induced earthquakes. Dr. Astor's article discusses how Oklahoma is the perfect place to study this strange phenomenon. Well, I'm uh, an earthquake seismologist, so um, I I've always been interested in, uh, in locating uh, and studying the sources of earthquakes. And the remarkable increase in seismicity in earthquakes in Oklahoma over the last decade or so is really something we've never seen before at this scale anywhere on the planet. So there's some really remarkable economic, scientific conditions that led to this increase in earthquakes in Oklahoma. I just wouldn't have guessed that of all places, Oklahoma is, is so important for this kind of research. Indeed, you know, Oklahoma has some natural earthquakes. This was recognized, you know, well be before the current uptick in, in earthquake activity. And as we've learn more about the geologic situation in Oklahoma, it's, it's more or less kind of a perfect storm for how you can inadvertently generate earthquakes uh, by human activity. Tell me a little bit more about what exactly you mean by a, an induced earthquake. Induced earthquake is one that, you know, with high statistical confidence we would say would not have occurred naturally, or a swarm of earthquakes that would never have occurred at this rate if it wasn't induced by some sort of uh, human intervention or perturbation to the geologic system. And the main kind of human intervention is, you'd say? In this case, people are producing lots of oil and uh, some gas from reservoirs that contain a lot of water. This wastewater, after the gas and oil is, is substantially removed, is re-injected into the earth into even deeper formations, even deeper than the formations that they originally produced from. And it turns out that uh, this large-scale injection of uh, billions and billions of gallons of, of water into these deeper formations has caused very, very significant uptick in the rate of earthquakes in Oklahoma. Wow. So would you say we can, we can almost predict where and when earthquakes are going to happen at this point? We cannot individually 
predict earthquakes, saying there will be a magnitude 5 in such and such a place at such and such a time. But we can gauge the forecasting of uh, earthquakes, if you like, something like weather. We can say, you know, we expect this area to have more seismicity, more earthquakes than another area. So it's more like weather forecasting than any kind of detailed prediction. We're getting somewhat better at it, but it's important to realize that earthquakes are still highly random phenomena. It's a very complicated system of interlocked faults and stresses and uh, fault conditions that lead to complicated and, and highly random earthquake behavior. So we're nowhere near the point where we can predict individual earthquakes, and it may be practically impossible to do so. But we've definitely made progress, right? We've gotten progress made on, I would say, the forecasting aspect of earthquakes. This is actually starting to be implemented into the national Mm -hmm. processing of earthquake data um, for high seismicity places like California. So we'll be able to give people reasonable probabilities of earthquakes of a particular size or larger over the next several days, for instance, in an aftershock sequence from a large earthquake. So the statistics are understandable enough that we can produce earthquake forecasts at some level. But earthquake prediction is a whole other game altogether, and as I've said, maybe a practically impossible proposition. So what can they do to prevent these kind of induced earthquakes in Oklahoma? Well, the earthquakes are being caused by the injection of water deep into the earth, to the depths where they actually influence ancient faults that have enough stress on them that when they are weakened effectively by this injection of water, uh, they can slip in earthquakes. So the obvious answer is that you have to moderate and be more careful about where you put these waters from um, hydrocarbon production back into the earth and at what rates. Last year and the year before, um, the state of Oklahoma actually initiated a uh, moratorium on injection in certain areas where seismicity was very high. And indeed, uh, combined with a decrease in production caused by the uh, uh, declining price of of oil, the amount of water being injected into the uh, formations in these earthquake-prone parts of Oklahoma has reduced, and so has the uh, earthquake activity. So we know we can turn them on and off at some level just by reducing and being more careful about how and at what rate we inject water into the earth. So thanks again for talking with me today, and I wish you the best for your future research. My pleasure. Thank you. To finish us out, Dr. Chris Rittner has written an article for the 125th anniversary of the discovery of helium. In our interview, he explains to me the unique properties of helium that make it one of nature's most remarkable elements. Okay, so you're a student or a, yeah, okay. I'm actually in computer science. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay, all right. Um, But this is the kind of stuff I really enjoy, so it... What kind of program? Are you programming or database or what are you... A lot of web development stuff. Web development, okay. Recently. All right. So thanks again, Dr. Rittner, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, your article about helium was fascinating to me personally because I always thought it strange that you know such a valuable commodity like helium is is still so cheap considering how important it is to medical purposes. Why exactly can you get helium in such large quantities for a relatively cheap price? Well, it, it's actually 
it's, I don't think it's terribly expensive to, to mine it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were sources of helium that were just almost seemed endless at the time. Right. So you could get relatively clean, pure helium out of the ground and uh, the cost of purifying it was, you know, not significantly uh, a big deal. There really wasn't any pressure uh, on it. I think in the last, oh, probably the last 10 to 15 years, uh, and going back even before that, so more like 20 years ago or even 25 years ago, um, there was a decision made by Congress to get out of the business of helium. Okay, mm -hmm. and so up to that point, we have we have a uh, national facility, a storage facility, uh, Texas, right? That's correct, and and that was basically there. It's still declared a strategic mineral, so it was just a way of of holding and you know part or apportioning out the the helium that was available. But they decided to get out of the business, and in the meantime, the uses for helium and the demand on the helium supply has gone through the roof. Uh, both in this country and internationally. So the story's not, not that different than, for example, uh, petroleum. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you didn't think much about petroleum. Uh, literally, you stick oil in the right part of the ground and oil came out and then you refine it and you, you know, gasoline and so on and so forth. But for lots of reasons, some of them political, obviously, and, and and then also just because we, we used up all that ready supply, petroleum's now much more expensive than it used to be. Although now we've discovered, you know, that there's, I won't say there's an endless, but the amount of carbon that's in, inside the ground is huge. Mm. Uh, that's actually probably true for helium. It's, it's a, a rare mineral, but there's a lot of it if you look at it over the entire, you know, what, what's stored in the soil. It's just harder to get to. It's harder to get, get out of, and our needs for it are, going up so do you think what we've seen with oil in the past say 60 years or so is predicting what might happen with helium so you know, gasoline used to be dirt cheap mm -hmm. you know over the last century mm -hmm. the price of helium could suddenly shoot up well it is shooting up so uh, 10 years ago I could buy helium for five to six dollars a liter and today it's uh, well my current price is is about ten dollars a liter so it's doubled in price um, and not, that's not accounting for inflation, so I mean, mm. just, it's just doubled in price. But if you actually consider how it's sold to me, I'm shorted. Uh, I pay for 100 liters, for example, of liquid helium, but I only get 70 to 80 delivered. So even if I'm paying $1,000, I'm actually getting delivered just, say, 70% of that total order, and I'm paying still $1,000 for it. So the, the actual price is closer to $13, $14 a liter now. Here, some places uh, are paying, some universities, some smaller institutions that don't have ready supplies are paying $30, $40 a liter for liquid helium. You also talk about in the article, um, there's certain special properties about helium that make it unique, right? Right. Could you go into a little more detail about that? Sure. So helium has, it's probably its most unique property is that it is able to stay as a, in a liquid form at really very, very low temperatures. And so the form of helium we use, which is helium-4, two protons and two neutrons in the, in the nucleus, has a boiling point at standard temperature and pressure. That means at sea level. 
okay. of 4.2 Kelvin. So zero Kelvin would be absolute zero. When people talk about absolute zero, they mean zero Kelvin. So that's really cold. That's a very important property. As it turns out, there are some really interesting things that happen to matter and materials when you cool them off. And some of those properties uh, we want to be able to study or examine at very, very low temperature, including at liquid helium temperatures or even below. So that makes helium a really important liquid or gas because you can explore, you can go down to those temperatures. So another really important property is it's uh, very light, so it fills, uh, be used to, to lift materials in a balloon, basically, say. Um, it's inert, so nothing really reacts or forms chemical compounds with helium. Uh, it's non-reactive. It's also not toxic. You, anyway. you mentioned MRIs, too. Uh-huh, yep. One of the physical properties that I alluded to is something called superconductivity. A superconductor is a material that has no resistance to the flow of current through the wire. And that sounds like it's almost too good to be true, but it's not. It's actually a real phenomenon. Why, I mean, you might say, well, why do we care? Well, we literally cannot make a magnet that is big enough and strong enough to do the things we want it to do, whatever that might be take images, do spectroscopy with it somehow. Uh, images meaning your body. We cannot build it so that it will run at normal temperature. And it's just more efficient to bathe it in a liquid helium bath or, or whatever's required. In the, and then it's superconducting and, and charge it and, and basically we don't lose energy in that way. So, so the, the apparatus will work the way we intend it to work. Well, that's all for our year in review episode. Remember, look out for earthquakes in Oklahoma. Don't take those helium party balloons for granted and try to avoid handling armadillos, if at all possible. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed hearing about these research stories as much as I did. Be sure to look out for more State of Research episodes next semester. And to all students and faculty out there, have a wonderful winter break.